Good evening. Another shooting. A doctor is shot with three others by a gunman complaining of back pain after surgery. COVID and climate. And why are there so many of these mass shootings? With these other stories, I'm Paul Grienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, June 2nd, 2022. The United States is now in its fourth biggest COVID surge. That's according to official case counts. But experts believe the actual current rate is much higher. The United States of America is averaging about 94,000 new cases every day, and hospitalizations have been ticking upwards since April, though they remain much lower than previous peaks. But COVID cases could be undercounted by a factor of 30. About one in five, 22% of adult New Yorkers likely had COVID between April 23rd and May 8th, according to the study, which has not yet been peer-reviewed or published. That would mean 1.5 million adults in the city had COVID in a single two-week period far higher than official counts during the time. The huge disparity between estimated and official counts is likely due to a rise in home testing, which is usually not included in official numbers. The World Health Organization says one factor contributing to the surge in cases is disinformation, especially on social media. In particular, theories the United States government is behind COVID. Dr. Mike Ryan of the WHO. There was always a concern with waning immunity from, from vaccination, that there always was a chance that this disease could continue to be endemic in the endemic areas or become epidemic. We've seen now this outbreak. So this has been constant. And uh, I think in this case, the United States of America deserves huge credit for having maintained and sustained its public health capacities, lab capacity and supporting countries through the when most other countries did not regard this as a threat. Much of the knowledge we have has come from US investments in understanding this disease and to associate this with some form of the spreading of disease or bioterrorism is, is quite frankly the worst kind of disinformation. And as Dr. Ryan, the WHO says one of the most dangerous spots in the world for COVID is North Korea. Again, Dr. Ryan. We're working off the same information that most of you are out there. This is not any privileged information. We, we have real issues in getting access to raw data and to the actual situation on the ground. We're triangulating like everybody else. We have offered assistance on multiple occasions. We have offered vaccines on three separate occasions. We continue to offer vaccines. We continue to offer supplies. We are working with neighboring countries like China and the Republic of Korea. We see a very positive attitude towards trying to deal with this. This is a collective problem. We do not wish to see intense transmission of this disease in a mainly susceptible population in a health system that is already weakened. This is not good for the people of DPRK. This is not good for the region. This is not good for the world. We are not in a position to make an adequate risk assessment of the situation on the ground. We assume that situation is getting worse, not better. North Korea reported 82,160 more people showing fever symptoms amid its nationwide lockdown to stop the impoverished economy's first confirmed COVID-19 outbreak. The media didn't mention whether there were any new deaths. And the real cause of COVID may not be conspiracies, but environmental degradation. So says Dr. Sarah Minari. She's the director for climate at the Glacier Foundation. She spoke with WBAI earlier today. Those kinds of places where you have wildlife butchered and being used for food and for commodities, those are places where zoonotic, these novel diseases can reach human populations. And while we understand, you know, these markets to be a hot spot, it's really important to understand the driving factors that bring people to have to engage in these activities. And that is about environmental degradation. It's about poverty and people doing 
the best they can under very meager and challenging circumstances. Does that mean we're going to just be facing these diseases more and more in the future? You do see this relentless drive to hyperconsumption and destruction. And the drive for hyperconsumption and destruction is often not because individual people are hungry. It's because extractive and abusive political and economic systems have put people in harm's way. These diseases are really are the decisions of, of powerful and elite people coming home to roost in the populations that they purportedly serve. It's a deeply unjust aspect of consumptive and extractive systems. We are projected to have more and more of these zoonotic diseases and exposures to human populations because of the um, ongoing destructive and consumptive patterns. Do you think that COVID is a result of this pattern that happened in Wuhan of the wet market and all that? Is that what you think happened? I trust the experts that have communicated about the origins of COVID, namely that it came from, it's a zoonotic disease that passed into a human being in a wet market. And particularly for COVID, COVID is like a microcosm. It's an example of the ramifications of humans acting with wildlife. To change the way that we look at this, not to think about these environments as inherently dangerous or inherently like packed full of diseases and sick animals. Rather, we have to think about these places as very precious, important environments that should be left alone. That there are parts of this world that do not need infringement by human beings, that need to be left to be able to manage the biological variability, diseases, and biodiversity within those environments. And this applies to things like Ebola and monkeypox and some others that I've heard of. I can speak to the broader ramifications of environmental degradation in driving emergent diseases. And even part of climate change is the movement of diseases that we've known for a long time into new areas. Vector-borne diseases, diseases borne by mosquitoes that are moving into, for example, southern parts of the United States that have never been there before. It's not necessarily even limited to novel pathogens or novel diseases. It's the expansion of diseases outside of the sort of geographic envelope that they've been constrained under normal, quote-unquote, normal climate conditions. What should people do about this? Everyone has a stake in climate change, and it should be on every single voting decision that you make is about climate change. And every way that you um, plan for your family to keep your family safe, to think about how you consume resources is a climate change decision. But ultimately, people need to target the true villains in this story. The fossil fuel, the oil and gas industry has known for almost 50 years about how dangerous and destructive their products are, and they've deceived the public all the way along. This is exactly the same situation that we saw in the tobacco litigation where tobacco execs deceived the public about how dangerous their products were. People need not only to see the villain in this story, but also speak their name in every situation because the costs for climate change are driven down to the local scale. So county budgets, city budgets, state budgets, all are paying out the nose for the infrastructure costs and the public health costs associated with climate change. And the people that should be paying for these costs are the fossil fuel industries, the oil and gas industries. They need to clean up the mess that they made. The concept of a carbon footprint for an individual is fossil fuel propaganda. It came into being because of PR that was paid for by Exxon. It's really important for people to, yes, manage their decisions as individuals and engage in political system, engage in democracy, but also see clearly through the PR and the propaganda.
That is Dr. Sarah Minari. She's the program director for the Glacier Foundation on Climate, Climate Policies and Climate Science. In New York City, meanwhile, somewhat COVID-related, a in Chelsea, in the uh, above the West Village, a school was briefly put on lockdown today after gunshots rang out near the campus and hit a nearby COVID-19 vaccination bus. Three people are in custody after the shooting near the Bayard Rustin Educational Complex at West 18th Street and 9th Avenue at about 2.10 p.m. According to the NYPD, there were no injuries as of 3.30 p.m. and no one in the vaccination bus was hurt. Lower Manhattan Council member Eric Botcher placed the gunshots to the NYCHA Fulton houses. He said that's where they came from and said in a tweet, this cannot continue. We'll have more on New York City's response to gun violence later in the newscast. Meanwhile, President Biden is making a trip to Saudi Arabia. They just announced that moments ago, a trip that would likely bring him face to face with the Saudi crown prince he once shunned as a killer. The trip comes as overriding United States strategic interests in oil and security have pushed the administration to rethink the arm's length stance that Biden pledged to take with the Saudis as a candidate for the White House. Any meeting between Biden and de facto Saudi ruler Prince Mohammed bin Salman during a uh, Biden visit to the Middle East could offer hope of some relief for U.S. gasoline consumers who are wincing as a squeaky tight global oil supply drives up prices. Biden would be expected to meet with Prince Mohammed if the Saudi visit happens, according to reports on the uh, deliberations that are being planned. Such a meeting could also ease a fraught and uncertain period in the partnership between Saudi Arabia, the world's top oil exporter, and the United States world's top economic and military power that has stood for more than three quarters of a century. And back to the World Health Organization, its uh, executive director is Tedros Ghebreyesus. He says that the war in Ukraine, if it continues, threatens to bring have major health effects on the people of Ukraine and worldwide as food shortages are beginning to be felt because of the lack of grain exports from the world's largest grain exporting country, one of the world's largest, which is Ukraine. Russian Federation's invasion began. WHO has delivered over 550 metric tons of medical supplies and equipment and trained more than 1,300 health workers in trauma surgery, mass casualties, burns, and chemical exposure. The number of attacks on healthcare continues to increase. As of yesterday, WHO has verified 269 attacks on health in Ukraine, killing 76 people and injuring 59. Healthcare must never be a target. We continue to call on the Russian Federation to end the war. The uh, head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus. Meanwhile, in more Ukraine news, the Secretary General of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, Jens Stoltenberg, has been speaking after uh, claims that uh, Russia has been sort of rattling its nuclear saber at the West as NATO has been sending more and more high-tech arms to Ukraine to help them in the war against Russia. Stoltenberg said that next month's summit, NATO summit in Madrid, will be a historic opportunity to strengthen the alliance in the face of what he called Russian aggression against Ukraine. He had this to say. Wars are by nature unpredictable. Uh, and uh, uh, therefore, uh, we just have to be prepared for the long haul. Uh, because what we see is that uh, 
this war has now become a war of attrition, uh, where the Ukrainians are paying a high price for defending their own country on the battlefield, but also where we see that Russia is uh, taking high casualties. Our responsibility is to provide support to Ukraine. Most wars, and also most likely this war, will at some stage end at the negotiating table. But what you know is that what happens around the negotiating table is uh, very closely linked to the situation on the ground, on the battlefield. So we need to help them, to support them, so they can uh, achieve the best possible uh, outcome of this uh, conflict. And as a NATO Secretary General, Jen Stoltenberg. And here in the United States, police in Tulsa, Oklahoma, say the shooter's doctor, the person who shot five people, well, himself and four others, say the shooter's doctor was among those killed yesterday during a mass shooting at a medical building. The shooter had complained multiple times about pain following back surgery and sought additional treatment in the days prior to the attack. The shooting on the campus of St. Francis Health System left five people dead, including the gunman. Two doctors, Preston Phillips, who had treated the gunman, and Stephanie Hoosen were killed, as was Amanda Glenn, an employee, and William Love, a patient. Police say they believe the gunman, Michael Lewis, shot himself. Vice President Kamala Harris mentioned the shooting in a speech today. I do want to, however, speak for a moment about uh, what happened yesterday in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, the president will be talking more about this later. Um, and, but we have been monitoring the situation quite closely. And the latest report, of course, is that four innocent people lost their lives and many more were injured. We, of course, all of us hold the people of Tulsa in our hearts, but we also reaffirm our commitment to passing common sense gun safety laws. The vice president of the United States the shooter was released from the hospital on May 24th. Afterward, this is according to police reports, the shooter called multiple times complaining about pain and seeking additional treatment. On Tuesday, Phillips saw the shooter for more treatment as his doctor. The gunman called Dr. Phillips' office again on Wednesday, seeking additional care and complaining about pain in his back at 2 p.m. Wednesday. Hours before the shooting, the gunman purchased an AR-15-style rifle from a local gun shop. The shooter also purchased a semi-automatic handgun on May 29th from a pawn shop. So far, it's believed both guns were used in the shootings. Eric Dalgish, who's the deputy sheriff for Tulsa, and uh, Dr. Cliff Robertson, who's head of the hospital, had this to say at a press conference yesterday. Dispatch received a call of an active shooter at the Natalie Medical Building at uh, 6457 South Yale Avenue. Um, we had officers uh, go arrive at the location uh, at 456, so a three-minute uh, response time, and made contact with victims and the suspect at 501. Uh, and that was them making their way to the second floor. The officers that did arrive uh, were hearing shots in the building, and that's what directed them to the second floor. We have uh, four civilians that are uh, dead. We have one shooter that is dead, and uh, right now we believe that is self-inflicted. Officers have not been interviewed, but we're certain that's a self-inflicted gunshot wound. I can't stand here and not thank the first responders in this city. I mean, look around us. The, the response has been incredible, and the, uh, I don't know that I, I've truly understood just how important 
our first responders can be and are every day. And that last voice was Dr. Cliff Robertson. He is the head of the St. Francis Hospital System. Witnesses spoke to reporters and told what happened when they arrived. Everybody seemed to be ready for the worst because of the events of the last few weeks. This is what one of those witnesses had to say. Well, after the incident last week or the week before with the Texas shooting, I was pretty anxious. So um, once I got here and then heard that she was okay, the shooter had been shot and was down, I felt a lot better. Um, It still is horrible what happened. And that was one of the witnesses. And on Capitol Hill, a weird event is the best way to put it, occurred during a broadcast congressional hearing. Representative Greg Stubbe, uh, he's a Republican from Florida, pulled out a collection of handguns during the House Judiciary Committee markup on measures aimed at preventing gun violence, prompting concern from Democrats on the committee. Democrat Sheila Jackson said at one point, I hope the gun isn't loaded. Stubbe shot back his answer. We'll let you hear what he had to say. Don't let them fool you that they are not attempting to take away your ability to purchase handguns. The Glock 19 was the highest sold handgun in the United States. It comes with a 15 round magazine. That gun would be banned. Right here in front of me, I have a Sig Sauer P226. Comes with a 21 round magazine. This gun would be banned. Here's a, here's a 12 round magazine. This magazine would be banned under this current bill. It doesn't fit. Because this gun was made for a 20-round, 21-round magazine. Here's a seven-round magazine, which would be less than what would be lawful under this bill if this bill were to become law. It doesn't fit. So this gun would be banned. I hope the the gun is not loaded. I'm at my house. I can do whatever I want with my guns. Here's a point of order. Is exactly what the Democrats want to do. And that's Representative Greg Stubbe of Florida. That was not in the actual capital chambers but he was participating in the hearing via via internet connection and therefore the guns were actually not inside the capitol but in his own home you have to see the video to believe it he had these gigantic guns pulling them out and then putting little tiny clips showing they didn't fit inside of the guns and saying that these guns were only active including the one he carried he said everywhere he went which uh he said should uh, carry a clip with 20 shots in it. That's what happened today in the halls of Congress. And, well, best to go to an expert on mental illness to discuss events like have been happening in the last few weeks. And uh, we have one in contact with a expert, a psychiatrist, Dr. Bandy Lee, formerly of Yale University and now with the Union Theological Seminary, where she's co-founding the Institute on Violence Prevention. She discussed the type of mental illness that is affecting these shooters. She says it's not individual mental illness, but society's mental illness. We are dealing with mental illness, but that is mental illness of society, not of individuals. We as a society have come to the point where we won't do what is necessary to stop the violence, and that, in a sense, is the mental illness. Well, what is mental illness then? It's a disorder of the mind where you may have a number of symptoms, including detachment from reality, rejection of truth, inability to accept facts or evidence, and you act in ways that are damaging to the self rather than being life-affirming. So you're saying that our society suffers these more than the individuals in the society? Yes, it happens at a societal level. Violence is a societal disorder. Explain that for folks who don't understand it. 
If we try to predict violence at an individual level, it's almost a fool's errand because even the most violent individuals are not violent most of the time, and the acts themselves are almost accidental. In fact, the only things that really do predict violent behavior is social and environmental conditions. Mental illness, per se, does not make one more violent. In fact, mentally ill individuals are more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators. If we look at violent acts or mass shootings, only a fraction of them are mentally ill. The most recent cases, the person who went in and shot 10 black people at Tops posted fascist, racist screeds on the Internet. He was clearly knew exactly what he was doing. And then the kid who went into that school who didn't seem to have a motivation besides he was bullied, like like who hasn't been bullied, but reacted in this insane way, it seemingly insane way. What's the difference between them and what links them maybe? They're more similar than different because it's societal conditions that push people to violence. And when those conditions exist, it's the most vulnerable people who become violent first. And we find that more and more persons are becoming violent from suicide to homicide. Certain ages used to be protected, and now they're no longer protected. Now even younger and younger groups are becoming violent in ways that we hadn't seen in the past. What's causing that? There are conditions at multiple levels, but the primary driver of violence is structural violence. Inequalities in economics social class, racism, sexism, ageism, all these things contribute to behavioral violence. People don't feel they're part of the society. They're alienated from it and they strike out because they don't care. Their own fame, whatever they gain from it in their own minds. Yes, their need for belonging and pride become far greater than even survival. Is it increasing and what's making it increase? Deprivation. You deprive people enough of these things and human beings are symbolic animals meaning that we we need not just food and sustenance for survival but we need to have a sense of belonging and meaning and those things are taken away and societal conditions are shaming and humiliating then we're pushed to violence is that because of capitalism yes it's inequality we also call it structural violence in the field of violence studies because Structural violence actually kills. In fact, it's the deadliest form of violence, but it's also the most potent stimulant of behavioral violence. For now, the driver is capitalism by far and in extremely rapid and life-threatening ways for the entire planet as well as the human species. In that sense, yes. In former times, it may have been other aspects may have been more serious drivers, but for now, it's capitalism. Dr. Bandy Lee, she's former faculty of the Law and Psychiatric Division of Yale School of Medicine, co-founder of the Violence and Health Working Group at the McMillan Center at the Yale Project, and a uh, leader of the Violence Prevention Alliance of the World Health Organization. She's currently with the Union Theological Seminary, helping co-found the Institute on Violence Protection. And locally, Mayor Eric Adams announced today that he's appointed a gun violence czar to tackle a scourge of New York City shootings, it's only expected to worsen as the summer heat approaches. Adams tapped Andre T. Mitchell, the founder of Brooklyn anti-violence group Man Up, which city investigators previously concluded has misused funds for the role. Adams said, today I am announcing a new task force that will be co-chaired by A.T. Mitchell 
touting his 20 years of experience in anti-gun violence efforts. The task force formed via Executive Order 19 signed today will be co-chaired by Deputy Mayor for Strategic Initiative Sheena Wright, and all of the deputy mayors will be on the panel, Adams said. The mayor told the crowd this is an all-hands-on-deck moment, noting the involvement in the new initiative of every city agency via a liaison. Jumani Williams had this to say at the event, which was on the steps of City Hall earlier today. Stop spending more money on the accountability and the consequences than preventing it from happening in the first place. That's all we've been saying. We are about to go to the fourth or fifth surge of police in the subways, and we still have violence. So all we are saying is we need more resources. If you really want to support the law enforcement, stop asking them to solve all of the problems that so many people have a part to play. That's the best thing that you can do. When this pandemic went up, the violence was going to go up. We know what to do. Fund it. Structuralize it. Make sure that when people call on the phone, they can get something that's not just police to deal with the violence problem that we've been dealing with for a long time. The last thing I'll say is the answer cannot be that we arrest more and more black and brown children of the black and brown people we arrested 10 years ago. Peace and blessing, love and light to you all. And coming up is going to be National Gun Violence Awareness Day. That's what the press conference and the event today at City Hall was all about. One of the organizers of the event for numerous years is Erica Ford of Life Camp Incorporated, well-known activist in the city. She had this to say. Why is it on the rise? That's COVID. That's the lack of resources to the groups who went four years with no killings, three years with no killings, two years with no shootings, three years with no shootings, who made a place for formerly incarcerated men and women to come home and work and build and transform their community. That took the guns out of young people's lives, gave them jobs, gave them hope, gave them aspiration. That is the brothers and sisters behind us. Erica Ford, she's the founder of Life Camp Incorporated and chief organizer of National Gun Violence Awareness Day, which is coming up on June 4th. And that's on the news for Thursday, June 2nd, 2022. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineer, Stretchy Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.